This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Good evening to all and welcome to Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod. Um, as always, it's a pleasure to be in your company and tonight is definitely not an exception. Um, just before we came on air, we played you a song by Huma Sekela. Um, and uh, we just want to say we're certain to hear the passing of a legend, um, a storyteller, a music maestro, a cultural activist, a global icon uh, of impeccable standing globally. Um, my recollection of Bright Hugh was one of our adverts, I think in the 90s, uh, he, we invited him actually, I was still a resident at Essendon in Hillbro. We invited him to come and give a talk about um, drug abuse and he gave us a wonderful talk and, and thought-provoking issues. And I remember Nazim Randera, you know, was flawed because he, he sort of teased Nazim Randera uh, uh, on that particular day. Um, that, that's my recollection of, of of, of Bright Hugh, uh, he will certainly be missed uh, because, um, um, it, well, I, let me put it this way. In my view, in my humble opinion, uh, the man lived, the man lived well, and we, you know, in as much as we'll miss him, but um, I, I wouldn't mind going like that. Um, nonetheless, uh, let's just say condolences to his family. Uh, it's, I mean, we have certainly lost a treasure um, of, of a national caliber. Uh, he will definitely be missed. Well, moving forward as a norm, let's, let's acknowledge um, Howard and his team for keeping you guys entertained. And, and I'm sure they'll, you know, they'll give you the same stuff uh, tomorrow. As always, I'm not flying solo. I'm with Vusi and Masinga here, um, who will make sure that we pay our bills, as always. Um, and he's just a part, and I just wanted to put him on the spot. But be that as may, uh, let's move on forward. Uh, tonight on the menu, we've got a very interesting uh, uh, topic, um, which has been in our lips for some time. It's the Stain of Saga. Um, you recall last year that in a blue chip um, company called Stenoff, um, you know, um, made unsavory, in my view, headlines uh, when it says plummeted almost 89% within a week. Um, and, and this resulted in the CEO resigning. And that prob- um, evoked a number of issues that, you know, I'm sure tonight with my guests, uh, uh, we'll, we'll begin to unpack. And, and her name is Aladan Joanne Madison, uh, who is the, uh, the executive director at the TM um, group. Head of corporate governance. Oh, head, of, uh, exa- oh, <laughs> head of corporate, head of corporate governance at TMF uh, a group, um, and um, Joanne um, has um, over twenty-one years experience as a company secretary, demonstrating expertise in meeting management, governance, and consulting compliance in line with Kim Four, the Companies Act, um, uh, and he has done a lot of work for JC listed company. So it makes her a credible individual. And besides, she's not a stranger to the show. She has given us a uh, intellect and thoughts previously. Uh, on that note, Joanne, good evening and welcome to the show. Thank you, Nermot. Good to be here. Lovely, ma'am. Hopefully this year will definitely rock like, like we did in, in the previous years. For those that have just um, joined us, uh, please um, give us your thoughts on, on 34519. My email is nimrod.chai2.0.a and of course our Twitter handle is at chai.fm. Uh, we definitely pr- uh, promise to give to get back to you. Like I said earlier when, when I introduced Joanne, the issue at hand for me, it is the stand of which the ramification will be with us for a very long time to come. Which begs this, this, this particular question. Um, anonymous circumstances, due diligence has to be applied um, in, in, in any transaction 
And I just want to, you know, uh, get Joanne's thought process around um, what could have made, what, what what could have been missed around the duty as it relates to standoff. I think that first of all, there's very little information in the public sector of or in 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 the public domain. Sorry, not sector. Uh, so a lot of what we're doing is guesswork, and there are a lot of contradictory facts. Um, from from what we know. So I think a due diligence has obviously got to cover the main disciplines that relate to that particular company, which is obviously your generic issues like legal, risk, technology, finance. And within that, you would have a, a set of questions for which you cover. But the problem is you can only do a due diligence on information that is before you, and it is usually the management that provides that information. And if there's a sophisticated fraud that they want to hide and there are no red flags to raise an issue that something doesn't make sense, then we're on the back foot. But I think in this day and age, there are a lot of tools that you can use to enhance the due diligence process. There are technology software that can highlight, if, depending on how it's programmed, certain issues that are brought to the forefront of the people involved in the due diligence. Obviously, risk factors would be a key issue that they should pay attention to, as opposed to spending hours going through agreements where there's not stuff that could add to the process. There's also artificial intelligence that can be used to even more fine-tune honing in on risk factors. And clearly, if one looks again at what are the issues most cogent for boards to look at this year, risk factors, cyber risk are key issues. So I think while we need to put in probably some extreme measures to look at risks that you would never thought were necessary five or ten years ago, I think one needs to brainstorm the whole due diligence process and to see in our current environment where there's computer hacking and all sorts of things that weren't around a decade or two ago and change perhaps the way due diligences are done. I couldn't agree with you, Joanne, that um, the due diligence uh, process can be looked at in two phases. You can look at the technical side of things, but can also be looked at the softer side of things. The softer side of things, I'm referring to issues around change management. In my view, the 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 the, 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 the scandals that we are seeing are as a result of both failing to appreciate the strategic importance of change management because um, you, you're moving to a space where you, you want to harmonize different thinking of different people from different uh, backgrounds. Um, in this particular instance, in my view, you all you, you have a lot of sameness which, which in a way, um, you know, uh, created a well, I'm saying, you know, blocks, so to speak. So, um, I just want to, I just want to find out from you how important is, is change management in, in the context of, you know, uh, uh, acquisitions. Yeah, it wouldn't form part of the due diligence, but certainly in an acquisition, I think it's a key issue. Many acquisitions fail because management hasn't has underestimated the importance of different cultures trying to merge. 
particularly when you have an owner-managed business trying with an entrepreneurial spirit trying to fit in a corporate environment. That is very, very difficult. And then you, you, you get the insiders and the outsiders and it creates a lot of conflict. So I think that the soft issues are very important and I think to bring it back to the due diligence, the due diligence process has got to start tying up soft issues to risk factors. But many, many acquisitions fail exactly because they've overlooked the importance of culture change. Because, I mean, particularly if you buy a com- 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 company that has a completely different set of values in the first place, you might need to get rid of the whole top management to integrate it into your business. And that in itself creates enormous instability and fear amongst other people. Are they going to lose their job too? So it's a very complex and difficult process to get right. And we've noticed in the, in, in the sun of um, debacle, for example, some of the exact Executives were part of the previous companies that which were bought, and, and they they happened to be in a strategic positions as it were. So you could see that there hasn't really been a, a concerted effort to look at both the soft and hard issues. Perhaps maybe the hard issues were there as part of the due diligence, but issues around how do we um, um, create a set of culture um, that is uniform um, outside what already existed seems to have been an issue that was omitted. I think so, and closely allied to that with an acquisition is knowledge sharing. If the business comes over with the same management, there's a danger that it's going to operate independently, and that heightens the risk of something happening in a business that head office knows nothing about. So it's very important to make sure that you have a broad executive team that knows what's going on in all the key areas and that if somebody leaves the company or drops dead or something untoward happens, that there are a whole lot of other people around that know what's going on and won't suddenly find a whole lot of things that could pull the business down and that you also don't have key man dependence, which is also a problem when you buy a business and it's, it's somebody who's started it from nothing with a strong entrepreneurial flair. One of the critical issues that that uh, you and I shared you know before we get on air was the strategic importance of the the audit firms um and we all say you know this big blue chip company has had um audit you know a financial report or its finances been audited from time to time. And in this particular instance, we are told that Deloitte uh, sanctioned um, unqualified audit opinion. And and in most of instances where there's been some level of you know shenanigans at the, at, at the corporate level, audit firms are party to that. And this, for me, begins to ask a fundamental question as to why most in most instances audit firms fail to you know, arrest possible uh, uh, risk coming from executive information of which they need to make um, a determination on? Well, I think it could be partly in the briefing 
if they get the brief generally from management on the audit scope, management to a large extent could control the scope of the audit. And if there's something they want to hide, depending on what it is, it might need a very astute auditor to say, yeah, this is what you've given us, but I think X is important. And if you get resistance from management, that in itself should be a warning that something is not right. But I think also uh, the arm's length relationship between the auditors and management has become even more important. There's an audit firm that I've worked with that have even revised their hospitality policy that they won't take their clients out for a lunch after the audit because that in itself could be perceived as getting too cozy a relationship. That was standard practice to do up to a Absolutely. few years ago. But we're in a different environment. The risks are bigger and the consequences are bigger. And so all these things need to be looked at afresh. Let's take a break and come back. But before you come back, um, I, sh- I want us to quickly again reflect on the strategic importance of auditing, given the, 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 the risk appetite um, which they need to preserve for us because they are the to promote public good if you're promoting public good surely there has to be transformation within the sector itself in terms of mitigating some of this risk let's take a break we'll come back in a second this is beyond governance with dr nimrod Mbele. welcome back it is now 22 after six we having um our esteemed colleague here joan Madison, um and the conversation tonight is really around um standoff what are the things that really happened that shouldn't have happened under the nose of um, very credible individuals uh, heading this particular institution. One of the issues that I, I sort of thrown um, at a joint before we took the break is that of the, 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 the audit fraternity. Um, the question is, what is it that needs to happen um, so that they, they redeem themselves? Because in all these instances, your KPMG uh, saga, for an example, has cast a dark shadow around the, 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 the importance or the role of audit firms in providing credibility and assurance to, to the public. So any of you, what needs, to, what needs to happen? What needs to change? Well, I think they probably need to in, interrogate quite carefully the risk policy and plan and particular the risk appetite and risk tolerance levels to see if they're appropriate to the business they're dealing with. For example, in a state-owned company, you would have very, very conservative levels of risk appetite and risk tolerance because you're dealing with public funds. A company like Steinoff on an aggressive acquisition policy, I would imagine, has a very high risk appetite. And the audit committee would need to interrogate those levels every year and obviously the auditors would be there and if something doesn't add up that in itself would be a red flag um, I think also the fraud management plan mm-hmm. and policy is a key issue and to get some assurance from management that they are actually adhering to these policies it's all very well to have the right policies in place to have them approved every year but there should be some kind of report back that management can confirm that where there are transgressions they have been dealt with no matter who it is in accordance with the policy plan I just want to play the devil's advocate here. 
Is it possible that the information asymmetry is as a result, is sometimes deliberate? Um, and it's also the result of the cozy relationship between management and, and some board members. I tell you why, because in, in most instances, uh, the, the information that is presented to the board uh, for management is often not the same as what management of, uh, um, what, what, what the board preside over, which means the certain things that the executive might try to hide, um, so that they are, they are misleading our board on specific issues. So th- that speaks to you know um, in information asymmetry, but but could it be that um, this kind of relationship is further compounded by causal relationship that exists outside? I think that's one aspect. I think another aspect is when a director agrees to an appointment on a board, he must take a lot of time to understand the industry. So that when the information comes to the audit committee or the board, he has enough understanding of the industry to say, hang on, their key ratios or their key statistics here pertinent to this industry, why are they not here? That in itself would be a red flag. For example, if it's a media company, you need to know what is the circulation, what is the print run. These are all statistics that are key to a media company. So a director has to invest a lot of time to understand what would be the right level of information that comes to a board because you don't want too much detail. The job of the board is not to micromanage the company or get involved in operational issues. Their job is to have oversight, to interrogate the issues, and they must make it clear to management what is the type of information they want and the level of information they want, and how do they want the board agenda structured. I think I think you, you hit it on a, on, on a nail by by referring to, um, I think the operative word, word there is interrogation of information. Board are expected to interrogate, but here's a scenario: you have a, a a company that has been established by you know certain individuals over a period of time, and they've you know uh, surrounded themselves by senior executives from other entities uh, with the view to provide that the kind of credibility. So you, as a board member uh, who's coming in uh, to provide oversight by firstly interrogating the statistics in your in, in, in your particular example. But how does this marry, or how does this, um, when you juxtapose that with the, 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 the strength of a chairperson or the strength of a CEO who has been party to this establishment over a period of time, you coming in as a relatively unknown board member, do you stand, you don't stand a chance. Well, I think that talks to the power, the balance of power on the board. I think if you go to Steinhoff, you had a very strong and charismatic chairman who was also a major shareholder. He was friends with the CEO. They lived in the same wine district. And from what I understand, they were friends. And possibly that's why he got the position in the first place. So if you've got those two positions that are closely aligned, Uh, I think it is going to be hard for other board members to challenge them. And that's why the JSE and King 4 in particular talk very much about the balance of power, that you need different people on different committees. And I think the overriding quality of a director is to have courage. 
that when you feel that a charismatic leader is not doing the right thing, you have to have the courage to know when is the right battle to pick and stand up. If you do not have courage, then I'm afraid you do not have the right quality to be a director. <laughs> My goodness, that's, that's, that's a big one. Um, that's a big one. Courage is the big one because... Um, in, in most instances, in my, in my particular experience for that matter, is that board members that comes into new environments end up losing face because become assimilated um, in that particular culture. And it makes it even more difficult for them to challenge the authority because in these kind of setup, power relation is quite significant. It is, it's, it's, it's almost palpable. You can almost feel it. So, so perhaps one of the things that... As a way forward, we need we need to look at how power relations um, can can be shifted uh, by empowering the the chairperson and the CEO to encourage, because sometimes without backing of senior executive, you know, you can be courageous only like we've seen most people who are cool with, with credibility, they're out in the street because they, they, they seem to have they never had support internally. Absolutely, but I think that t- talks to being emotionally intelligent as they say you can disagree with somebody but it doesn't mean you need to be disagreeable so I know from my own experience as a company secretary often I've been able to say something in a board meeting and nobody takes any notice but a board member says the same thing and people take notice so you've got to figure out what what is the strategy that you need to implement to make things happen as a company secretary I would build up my allies behind the scenes and then get the director who I knew the board would take notice of to put forward whatever the issue was that I felt was important. So in the case of a non-executive director who's overpowered by a chairman and a CEO who are in a strong, close relationship, I think the way he'd have to deal with it is lobby behind the scenes with other board members if there's a serious issue that he believes needs to be addressed. And then when he deals with it, to ask questions in a way that is probing, saying, this doesn't seem to add up. Can you give me more information? You don't have to be confrontational. You can come across as you seeking clarity, as you seeking information. And in that way, hopefully you can draw the issues out. The assumption there, Joanne, is that leadership has, is visionary. Leadership has um, seen, seen the bigger picture in that um, they appreciate um, a voice of dissent because in that dissent, provided is, is, is orchestrated in a respectable manner, um, they, one is able to build in the process. But, but surely that's, in, in most instances, um, we, especially in companies that are family-owned, which has been running generations, it's very difficult to have that kind of orientation around, look, let's, let's bring in you know, individuals that are critical, individuals that won't necessarily sign off from some of things that we see or know, let's bring in people who would even challenge us. For me, that's quite difficult. And this is something that boards need to appreciate. They definitely do, but they need to, it's, it's a mindset. They need to see a challenge, not as confrontational, but something so that it can help the board strengthen the decision or else be compelling enough that the board doesn't go with that decision. So it, 
it depends on how the information is presented, but it is particularly difficult in an owner-managed company because the person, I mean, if you look at pick and pay, they had the maturity when they appointed Sean Summers to understand that they were getting big enough that they needed to have that outside independent input into the company. So part of being a director and a leader is having maturity and knowing when you have to let go and devolve power to other people because they've got new skills, different skills, the business is growing, that you can't keep everything to yourself. But when you juxtapose that very, that very point, Joanne, um, instead of um, vis-a-vis um, the independence of, of, of executives, uh, we have had incredible uh, caliber of individuals who have managed, run companies, and yet the road happened on their nose. How do you account for that? Well, it depends where it happens. It's possible that there's not enough sharing of knowledge, that not enough people know what's going on. It's also possible that at a non-executive level that each non-executive doesn't have broad enough knowledge to look at the whole big picture, that they tend to focus on the areas that they understand and assume that somebody else on the board is giving the proper oversight to other issues. I think a very good example is the annual financial statements. The board relies very heavily on the Audit and Risk Committee or just Audit Committee, depending what they have, to interrogate the financials. But that doesn't absolve the board itself from doing its own due diligence on the financials. And in fact, that's one issue that the board cannot delegate responsibility and accountability for is the approval of the annual financial statements. So if not, you can't know everything, but you have to be sure that the key issues you have a certain level of understanding and that if you don't, there's somebody on the board that you feel that you can rely on that can give sufficient oversight and attention to that particular matter. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that, on that point because ultimately you need to have those kind of a strategic alliance within the board um, so that you're able to bounce off ideas with. Um, and, and, and obviously take your, your, your work seriously and at some point register your, 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 your dissent or register your, your discomfort in a situation where you, you feel that um, um, certain risky issues are not being taken into account. Certain risk issues are not really being given the attention they deserve. Um, but what would you... I mean, let's look at the stand of executive and non-executive. What would be going on in their minds when the company lost almost 86% of the shares? I think they must have been absolutely horrified. It certainly talks to their own credibility, and especially in the light of the fact that there's so little information in the public domain. I think their credibility is all under question at this point in time. What is particularly scary is if you go onto the Steinhoff website, it says that you, uh, because of what's happened, the financials for the last two years have to be restated, and so you cannot rely on them. That means critical metrics like cash flow, which is a key metric to determine the health of the company. We don't know if that's correct. We don't know the valuations of the businesses individually and collectively are correct. So we really are in a very, very scary place 
in my view. As you know, the stock market is very much about perception. Absolutely. So that plummet of 89% in a, a week um, is very, very scary, but it might or might not have a reflection on reality. We really, at this point, have no idea what the valuations are. But what does it mean for us as managers um, who have invested in startup on the basis of some level of credible, credibility of information that was presented to them? It's very worrying because some of the executives have been wiped out financially because they had a lot invested in the company. So it's very worrying where was the problem. And, you know, perhaps it was in these off-balance sheet transactions where maybe only one or two people were privy to what was going on and everything else is good. But what's also very worrying is that there's a mad scramble for cash. So that tell that is a big warning signal. I mean, as far as we can tell, the operations in South Africa are cash generative and are value accretive, but we don't really know. That is a perception at this point in time. Where does this put King Fall um, um, as a guiding code around good governance? What does it mean? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's a guiding code. Mm. Um, and as we said right either. at the beginning, you can't legislate behavior. But I think in the environment where we've had state capture, everybody's resentful of the haves. They've got more than me. So we're in an environment of distrust. We're not in a very good, a high culture, ethical environment at the moment. And let's hope that with the new leadership in the ANC, the ethical culture that we had under Mandela will be revived. And I think if it's revived at a political and a state-owned entity, that culture will feed into the private sector. If you look at the period under apartheid, most people hated to pay taxes and were looking for every way to get around it because they felt their taxes were being used badly. Mm -hmm. And we're back in that same situation. So the individuals are trying to get out of things because they treat unfairly, you have a pervasive culture of wanting not to comply. So if you change the nation's culture, I think you will generally see a better level of behavior. Well, let's just see. Uh, now that we've got a new leadership under the Ramaphosa, let's just hopefully the kinds of ethical conduct um, will come through. But before we want to take, before we, take a, uh, we go to the break, this is one thing that I wanted to ponder on, um, which relates to already the the, this, the, the, the SOEs. We know that there's a, a, a number of uh, turnaround strategies which have been implemented, and and um, in part of the turnaround strategies to have um, requisite skill sets that will uh, behave ethically and beyond reproach in, in as far as guiding entities to a to do a greener pasture, so to speak. I mean, we've noted that uh, uh, Jabu has been appointed the chairperson of, of ESCOM, which we are all applaud. But um, I'm not sure whether that's good enough. Um, that's not good enough. Uh, but let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. It's amazing how time flies. It's now uh, 19 to 7. I'm joined in studio by John Madison, and we're really chewing 
on a stand of uh, saga. Uh, uh, but before into the break, I think the question at hand, uh, as we gravitate towards the state-owned enterprises, um, which which meant to give credibility to the market um, so that everybody feel that the, the, the taxes have been used um, correctly. Um, and, and we're saying we, we really applaud the new leadership, the NC leadership, in as far as um, putting the right people to the right position, uh, people with credibility and skill set and so on and so forth. Um, but, but there are deeper questions or deeper issues that need to be thoroughly interrogated. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to, to think by putting individuals it's good enough. There are a lot deeper issues that need to be looked at as part of the turnaround. Uh, for an example, the current business model of ESCOM. Uh, to what extent is flawed? Because that's that's where we need to start. Because um, I mean, we know we we told that ESCOM needs to raise about twenty billion rands within the next three weeks, uh, and that twenty billion rands uh, sits with with. Well, we we taken into account of corruption and maladministration, granted, with the new leadership, the clean the slate will probably uh, clean and nicely and what have you. But moving forward, Joanne. What from from a business model point of view? What are those things that need to be done differently, um, so that they, they, there is synergy? I think the first problem is to look at what are South Africa's needs in terms of electricity. From what I've seen of information in the public domain, ESCOM has been very resistant to renewables, which will ultimately be cheaper and more sustainable and better for the environment. Uh, I think we'll all agree that the nuclear program is ridiculous for South Africa. We don't need it and we can't afford it. So I think... A proper analysis needs to be done, or if it has already been done, to be taken out of the dust and re-looked at of what actually are the needs of South Africa in line of projected growth going forward and realistic pricing, and then have a business model that talks to that. The other side of it, of course, is that state-owned entities have a commercial license and a social license. And those two needs are often very conflicting. So you need a proper budget so that the social license, to an extent, funds the commercial side of it. Um, Sorry, the other way, the commercial side of it funds the social side of it. And the two should be aligned. For example, Eskom should fund... Uh, bursaries for people who are training as engineers, give them learnerships, um, and if they're good enough, possibly jobs, because that builds up a loyalty uh, to ESCOM. It also builds up a, a culture of public service, which is so important, which is what we are so lacking at the moment. The public sector, there's a perception that people are out for themselves, what they can get out of it, whereas public service is exactly that. It's a service to the public. Obviously, people should be properly rewarded, but not out of proportion. I think you hit on a nail, um, Joanne, and I agree with you for a simple reason. Um, any turnaround without looking at the business model around the, the, the two imperatives that you alluded to, there's, there's a commercial imperative, there's also a social imperative that looks at you know, public side of things. And, and in most instances, these kinds of imperatives are, I don't think there's a common understanding at the board level 
as to how or which of these uh, imperatives need, need to take precedent. In some instances, when you've got a board that is more um, uh, left-oriented, the social um, policy imperative takes precedent at the expense of the commercial ability. And, 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 and again, when you've got a board that is more commercial in orientation, that takes precedent. So one of the biggest challenge is, is a determination uh, for ESCOM, for example, is it? This is a commercial entity. Therefore, it needs to be driven entirely on commercial ground. And, and for, for us to drive it and manage it entirely on commercial ground, what are the things that the board needs to look at? It can't be completely commercial because electricity in the rural areas, I can't imagine, is profitable. Um, so it, it, that needs to be subsidized by the, <laughs> the more profitable areas. So... I think the board has to look at those areas carefully, but if you're a state-owned entity, you have to align with the National Development Plan. Mm -hmm. So the board should have an understanding of that. They should also be very familiar what's in the shareholders' compact because that will spell out exactly what their objectives are, and then they have these predetermined objectives, and management is measured against those quarterly, and the board should demand that the progress on each one of those predetermined objectives as agreed in the shareholders' compact that's agreed to annually is interrogated at every quarterly board meeting and where there's too big a deviation it needs to be interrogated and get back on track. Budgets need to be detailed so that you understand exactly where the money is going and where the deviations are and what are the reasons for the deviations from the budget. I agree with you, uh, John, but, but there, there's this caveat I want to throw in. Um, the, 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 the shareholder compact, um, as a, as, as almost overarching framework which governs or which guide how the board, I mean, the board and executive need to, um, and uh, take direction to it. In, in most of these AOSOEs, the shareholder compact is almost like a, a compliance document. Uh, which is not followed through. In principle, it's a wonderful document to have because it, it marries the NDP imperatives and it, it forces people to think that way. But execution becomes a huge, uh, it becomes a different thing altogether. I agree with you, but that's why it's important that you keep going back to your source documents. Out of that comes the predetermined objectives, and that's why that document must come to the board quarterly and be interrogated so that you keep coming back to what is your purpose, what is your objectives, how far are you from it, what's going wrong, why is it going wrong, what is the remedial action we need to take. I couldn't agree with you more because in, in my private experience in that we, we, we part of um, the shareholder compact which is a document which uh, informs the, the strategic thrust and operations of an entity um, the, the, the overarching thinking has always been done of compliance and not much thinking has gone into how what does this mean and the extent to which the board because ultimately this is the in my mind the, 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 the competence of the board to make sure that the shareholder compact one is in place and second it is followed to the latter. But but there's also a lot of confusion around the two imperatives that you mentioned earlier, the commercial imperative as well as the public policy imperative around uh, how SOEs needs to be needs to function. There seems to be a confusion because once we can clarify that confusion for ESCOM, for SAA and Denel and so on and so forth, let us understand exactly what is the core business of this entity 
and, and what is a secondary uh, mandate? Because once you understand the core mandate and a secondary mandate, it is easier in terms of allocating resources, in terms of allocating uh, uh, accountability and so on. But in, in, in my experience, I haven't really seen that kind of detailed interrogation as to what support the core mandate and what support the secondary mandate. Well, I think it's incumbent on every board to have a strategic session annually. And in that strategic session, they would review their vision, their mission, what their strategic objectives were for the past year, how they performed against it, and how they need to tweak the strategy going forward and be innovative. Because in such a fast-moving environment, you have to be innovative to be sustainable to get anywhere. And then, only once you've got that, can you start allocating resources. But if you follow the integrated thinking decision-making and reporting, that will help you look at all the different inputs, the activities the company does, its outputs and the outcomes, so that you do get a holistic picture of everything that the company is doing and should be doing and is not doing that it should be doing. Your take on, on, on the appointment of the new ESCOM board? I think it looks good. Um, They obviously, in such a short time, couldn't do a proper skills matrix. I mean, the urgency of getting a competent, credible board means that they chose good people, but maybe there are gaps. And hopefully in time when the, the, you know, when the boards had a chance to deal with the crises, the nominations committee can sit and actually do a proper analysis of what skills they have on the new board and what are they missing? What do they need to improve on it? But I, I think it's a good start. And I couldn't agree with you, man. I mean, I, Jabu, for an example, I think he has made a, 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 a huge impact um, at uh, Telcom when he was still in the chairperson. Look at Telcom's, um, um, fortunes were turned completely but also that speaks to the the business model and I keep on coming back to this point the, if the business model um, is aligned it is easier to for, for the state as a shareholder to to, to, to really optimize its existence but in, 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 in the absence of a, a well thought through business model it's very difficult it is very difficult because if you don't know where you're going you can't get there I mean, what are the, some of the lessons that you think Jabu will bring in uh, as part of transformation at ESCOM based on his experience at, 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 at Telcom? Well, I think in, it, to be innovative <laughs> is key because the old methods of providing energy are not working. We need to promote renewables. It's got lots of other benefits in being good for small business and should create a lot of jobs. It's better for the environment. Uh, it's easier to, to get it to the rural areas. So I think elevating renewables would be good for everybody in the country on, on all levels. And certainly, I'm not sure how or if it's possible to get out of this nuclear deal, <laughs> but I, I think we should get the best lawyers to help him get out of that in a very big hurry. But, but, but I mean, I, I, well, I, let's hope... Um, Eventually, we'll find ourselves out of that because it, it's definitely not uh, feasible. We, it, it, we, we cannot afford it in our current environment. And besides, the renewable energies, we've correctly pointed out, is the way to go. But but let's look at again um, an issue around performance of the board because in 
I've not, I've not seen, I've looked at uh, previous uh, ESCOM uh, uh, board assessment reports, I've not seen any. Um, what could have accounted to, to the board not being assessed? Because out, out of board assessment, because we're supposed to be a public document, we need to see what could have been some of the technical issues that the board needed, which will then inform the current board moving forward. Well, it's incumbent on the board to have an annual board assessment. I'm not sure if if... if if you say they didn't have it, if they got away with it, or else they had it and it didn't get its find its way into well, the public I've, domain. I've looked at it, but I mean, I've, I've not seen it. I've not. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm speaking on a correction, but I, I've, I, it was deliberate on my part to look at the uh, um, assessment, uh, a board assessment report, so that we were able to see over and above what what the public knew about some of the shenanigans. Yeah. You know, it will be interesting to see because these are some of the things that will inform the new leadership. Well, um, in a transparent company, in their integrated report, they should report on it and and the outcomes and what is the action they're going to take on the issues that have been raised. If that never happened, hopefully there's still a document somewhere in Eskom that the board should ask for and go through it and see if there are issues for the current board to deal with. But I think they've got to get through the crisis management first and just stabilize the organization before they can look at those things which are more longer term. Talking of stabilization, I mean, um, we've got a new board and, and in my mind we definitely have to have at the senior executive level because we've heard that the, the CFO has been suspended um, and has resigned which is obviously spells a good news in terms of appointing someone else who is new, who can give fresh perspective and confidence around the affairs of the entity moving forward. Absolutely. It, it's key. Your leadership is key to everything at the end of the day. The board sets the tone, the culture, the direction of the company. It's a bit more complicated in state-owned entities because the shareholder has a lot of say. But, I mean, that's a structural po- problem in state-owned companies. All right. Well, I guess I guess uh, we just have to leave it at there. Um, Joanne, thank you very much for coming through. It has been an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure um, our, our listeners out there have benefited from this rather complex conversation because, truth be told, it is not easy. Our role is to educate and inform, and, and hopefully some of the aspirant um, you know, managers and, and out there are um, maybe able to pick some of the things um, that they can use in their private space. Until we meet again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Good evening.